The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guy's Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guy's Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights. From the guests, I bring you each and every week to the show, and once again, this week's show is no exception. I've got a fantastic guest. He's been on my show before. He's a true mentor and inspiration to me as an interviewer. His name is Larry Lawrence Grobel. He's considered the interviewer's interviewer. He's interviewed everyone from Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, John Huston. Barbara Streisand, on and on and on the list goes. He's just an amazing talent, and he's written, I think, over 30 in-depth interviews for Playboy magazine, and his big one was Brando for the, I believe it was the 25th anniversary, and then he did Pacino, and he actually became friends with a lot of the folks that he interviewed with, and that's no easy task when you're talking about Hollywood because it's such a tough industry, and It's really a challenge to get some of these stars to let their guard down and really open up and talk about the things that you know you're going to be asking them. Now, it's a little bit different for Larry Grobel. He was interviewing folks, A-list talents who did not necessarily want to be interviewed, whereas I'm usually interviewing people who want to be interviewed. It makes a big difference, but has comes with separate challenges for myself i have to make sure that my guests don't just strictly use the platform to promote their work they have a conversation so that's on me to do that and for larry it was up to him to get these a-listers to really let their guard down relax and have a conversation and let everybody get to know them a little bit as human beings beyond uh, just their work that they do as fantastic as it is people want to get to know the stars a little bit more up close and personal So we've got Larry Grobel, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio today. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. One, we are going to talk about interviewing and the challenges of dealing with celebrities. But we're also going to talk about two books he's written. And Larry's written over 30 books. And one of them is called Turquoise. It just came out. And it's based on a diary he kept during his time in the Peace Corps in Ghana way back in the late 60s. So this was unearthed recently, and he pulled it all together and cleaned it up, and he produced this wonderful book called Turquoise. So we're going to talk about what it's like to be in the Peace Corps, what it's like to work in Ghana, really different culture than we have here, but it's all about life. It's all about humanity. So I think you're going to enjoy that. We're also going to talk about another book of his that I found fascinating and a lot of fun. It's called Catch a Fallen Star, and it's about Hollywood. It's kind of like my book in a way in that it's a fast-paced romp rom-com type of thing and it's a lot of fun and it's written completely differently it's fiction and the tone and the world that larry creates is completely different than what he did with turquoise but 
Both of them were excellent, nevertheless. So my special guest uh, this week's show is Larry Grobel. I can't wait to get into the interview, so why don't we just do it right now? It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, the interview portion of our show. Today, we're going to talk about writing, the art of the interview, the Peace Corps, Ghana, and life itself with Larry Grobel. He's written over 31 books and for numerous national magazines and newspapers. Playboy called him the interviewer's interview after his interview with Marlon Brando for the 25th anniversary issue. He created the MFA in professional writing program for Antioch University, and uh, he has uh, his book, Conversations with Capote received a Penn Special Achievement Award and reached the top of several several bestseller lists. His blog, books, and articles can be found on his website, lawrencegrobel.com, and he's written over 30 books, as I mentioned, including his new memoir, Turquoise, which is about his Peace Corps years in Ghana. And when I first interviewed Lawrence last year, he told me some great stories about his first job selling encyclopedias on Long Island. So, First of all, welcome to Guys Guys Radio. Welcome back, Lawrence Grobel. How are you? I'm doing fine, Robert. How are you? Okay. So yeah, last time we talked, we started out talking about your selling encyclopedias on Long Island, some hilarious stories. But preceding that job, you joined the Peace Corps. That's quite a must have been quite a shift going from school to the Peace Corps to selling encyclopedias. So how'd you come about entering the Peace Corps? Okay, backwards. I sold encyclopedias before the Peace Corps. Ah. I was a young, yeah. I, uh, and, and the encyclopedia story, by the way, is in the art of the interviews. I mean, I, 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 when I did the introduction to the art of the interview, I actually said that I, I think learning how to sell encyclopedias, how to get through a door uh, uh, and convince people to get to buy something they didn't want uh, was, a, was a, an experience that helped me a lot with interviewing. But then after uh, I was a junior in high school when I did that, I think maybe. And then uh, after I went to, um, oh, no, I must have been I must have been a little older. Maybe I was a, a, a sophomore, a freshman or a sophomore out of college when I did it for a summer. Anyway, wh- whatever it was, it was uh, it was 1965. And then I joined the Peace Corps. In 1968, I was concerned about the army. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to go in. I, I wanted to avoid the draft, but it wasn't the reason I joined the Peace Corps. I, I, I was influenced by by Kennedy a great deal. I used to listen to Jack Kennedy's speeches when I was a kid. You know, and I, and I had a record and listened. You know, I I, I loved the guy, and I thought the Peace Corps was a really honorable uh, thing to do. And I always thought I'd like to do it. Once the war in Vietnam started, I thought even more so. I, I wasn't going to go to graduate school because it wasn't. I, w- I wouldn't get deferred, and the Peace Corps didn't defer you either. But at least it gave you two years, uh, and in my case, it was three years that I stayed. Um, uh, and it, it's it's a very long story how I avoided the draft because they still try to draft me when I was in Ghana in the Peace Corps. But my my peace, my Peace Corps experience was probably the most significant experience of my life. Um, and I, whenever I taught at UCLA for 10 years, I always brought in someone from the Peace Corps to talk about, about it. And I convinced a lot of people to join and, and do it because um, it's a terrific experience. Uh, where else can you get a, a, a free trip to someplace in the world that's fascinating? 
where you will be treated better than you deserve. Uh, and um, you will have health care. You will have uh, 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 you will be paid enough to live. Not you're not going to make much money on it, but uh, but they encourage you even to travel and give you a stipend for that. And when you leave, they give you some money so you can travel a bit. I traveled eight months around the world on the two thousand dollars that they gave me for for my three years there. Um, nowadays, you get a lot more than that. But um, so so it was when I was there. One of the things. And I maybe I regret it now a little bit, but I, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And I thought going to Africa, going to an experience like this, uh, if I'm not going to take a, t a camera with me because anything I want to remember, I will write about. That was my my thought. And I did that. I didn't have a camera. And so right from the beginning, I started keeping uh I guess it was a journal or a diary of some sort, but it was it was more like I was writing little vignettes, stories about the people I was meeting and um, the adventures I was having. Now, when you're a 22 year old kid, uh, you're having a lot of sexual adventures, a lot, you know, you're having a lot of, you know, your friends are coming back and they're smoking weed and, you know, and and, and you're, you're just dealing in a, in a, in a whole different uh, environment, but you're, 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 you're meeting people. I was meeting, uh, a woman, uh, an Italian woman who was like Zorba the Greek. She was a female Zorba the Greek. Uh, I, I met an Australian motorcyclist who was traveling around the world on a Moto Guzzi motorcycle. And I, you know, went on adventures with him. I met Victor Anglebe, who became one of my closest friends. And he was a National Geographic photographer. And he had the greatest stories, you know, I mean, he was amazing, but influenced me a great deal in the sense of this is what I want to do. I want to freelance when I can, you know, if I can. Um and then it was the the people, you know, I had, I hate to say that I had a houseboy because I, I I still shudder when I say the word houseboy, but there was a young man who needed a room and uh, uh, I had a, a, a room downstairs from the uh, duplex that I was living in the upstairs. And um, some, my language teacher at the time came by and said, you know, you can't have an empty room there. I know so many people who need a room to stay. So he came, stayed. Uh, he, so he ended up becoming a very close friend of mine and, uh, I dedicate my book by the way, this, uh, to him. Um, but so, so I'm, 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 I'm in this Africa, I'm writing about this thing, uh, from a very honest point of view. Um, and I, 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 when I was about, uh, when I wrote about 200 pages, I sent it. I sent the whole section of it to an editor in, in New York, Doubleday editor. I didn't know who he was. I just sent it out blind. I had no agent. I was not, I, I wasn't a professional writer yet. So, uh, but I got back a letter from him saying he really liked it. He think he would like to publish it and he'd like to see the whole thing. And because of that letter, his name was Mark Hafley. And uh, I stayed in Africa one more year just to work on it. And I did. And I finished it. I, I called it Turquoise because there was a sculptor that I had interviewed for a African Arts Magazine uh, in Ghana. And I had met him. And he's a wonderful man. He was a bulky, big guy. Uh, and he, he made these sculptures out of tree trunks. And he became very famous. Um, uh, his name was Vincent Kofi. And I asked him, what? What was the what, what was the truth in art? Is there a truth? And he said, truth is like the color turquoise. He said, you know, under artificial light, it's one color. Under natural light, it's another. 
And I thought, what a good idea, title for a book, Turquoise, because anything I'm writing about Africa on my, my first year there, it changed so much my perceptions on my second year and changed again on my third year. So I was thinking anybody who tried to say this is what Africa was like is just crazy. But it, it, but what your experience is like in Africa, you could do that. So this became my my truth in a sense. Um, so I had that idea in mind to, to call a book Turquoise. Uh, when I finished it, I put it aside. I, I traveled for eight months around the world, got back to New York, took got the manuscript. I sent it back uh, in the trunk I had sent and just took the manuscript, went to Doubleday in New York and went to the, you know, the building and said, uh, I'm here to see Mark say, I didn't even call. I didn't even check in with anybody. It was so, so naive. And um, they said, oh, he's no longer here. He's no longer with the company. Well, where is he? I said, so I made him know that. So, so, I, so I, I'm standing there in New York, whatever it was in, in Manhattan. And I just was forlorn. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? I have this manuscript I wrote. I didn't know. I didn't have any. I didn't even show it to anyone. Um, I went home and put it away. And I just started, I, I started writing very quickly for Newsday and for the New York Times, uh, while, you know, coming back from that. And I got so busy. I was I was so busy, actually, that I wrote nine stories, nine articles for Newsday's Long Island magazine before they even paid me. You know, they owed me for, you know, so I think it was like $500 an article. They owed me $4,500 before I even got paid. I mean, it was just that kind of energy I had, you know, to just to, mm -hmm. to, to create. In the meantime, I put this thing away, and it this and it, it, it was in the bottom of a drawer. And when I moved to LA, I, I, all my stuff came out with it. I put it away in a filing cabinet. Never did anything with it. And then, when I when I uh, uh, was writing a, a, my book, stuck. I think it. I think my short story book. I have a couple of these things here. But when I did this book, these are short stories. The last three stories in the book are are based in Africa. Fetish, Ask the Devil Who's Taken My Eyes, and All Die, Be One Die. Those are the three titles. And I remembered those stories. So I went looking for them to put in this book. And when I did, I found the manuscript for Turquoise. And I said, whoa, that's amazing. So I looked at it, and it was eight by eight and a half by 11, uh, 14 paper. You know, it was a legal paper. And I started reading it over, and I saw a lot of it I could take out. It didn't need a lot of it had, you know, it was... You know, oh, how lonely I am, or oh, miserable me, or whatever. Took that stuff out, and I concentrated on the uh, the stories that I thought were interesting, including all the failures I had with women and all the successes, whatever. But you know, it was just it was just an interesting time, and um, so I put it together, and I said, now's the time I can actually put it out. And I thought the I thought of a cover. I thought turquoise. I, I'd like to get a guy. When I was in Tahiti you know, the uh, to Brando's Island and all that stuff, I had taken a lot of pictures of the water. And, you know, the water had, has gradations of, of beautiful blues and turquoise. So I took that, sent it to a friend of mine. I said, look, I want to copy James Joyce's Ulysses uh, uh, first edition that, that came out. It was all just a blue cover with the title in white and the name on the bottom, James Joyce. That, that was my homage to Joyce's Ulysses. And... Um, so, and I sent him this picture and he did that. And then he came up with the idea of putting this little a Ghanaian flag in the O. So, you know, here's the book and you can see there's different gradations. I think it's beautiful, just very simple, but you know, here's the Ghanaian flag. And on the back, there I am right in the middle there with some of my students. And this is what I looked like when I wrote it when I was 22.
Okay, Larry Lawrence Grobel, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. We're starting out by talking about his book about Ghana and his time in the Peace Corps called Turquoise. So what I read of, of the book, I found, first of all, it was brilliantly written. And I'm not saying that because I know you. It was really well done. It was very Hemingway-esque in a way. And it also I had a little bit of Camus in there because you use the, the, it was a lot of it was about the life and life itself that you experienced while living in this foreign land where the simplicity of joy well, people who didn't have that much yet could find happiness and joy and really be living, whether in the ocean, on the beach, very different than in the urban areas. And you really tapped into that. And it seemed to me from reading it that it really affected you in a really positive way and was very life affirming. You want to talk about that, Larry? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'll tell you, honestly, the, the Peace Corps, there have been some people in the Peace Corps, in the staff side of it, that really don't like this book. Why? Because, first of all, you're not allowed, uh, from what I understand today, if you s get caught smoking marijuana, you get thrown out of the Peace Corps. I, 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 there wasn't a person in the Peace Corps that I was there that didn't, you know, I mean, it was just like, it was just, you know, it was there. And so, you know, not that we did it all the time, but it was like, it was part of the, your, your your activities in the on the weekends anyway. Um, and so, you know, I, I found that there was a festival there, for instance, there's a deer hunting festival in, in, in Ghana that 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 was one of the first things that I experienced when I was in Winneba, this this town where we were trained. And it was an unbelievable kind of experience. You know, people were in the streets. Everybody had flags flying, for, you know, Canadian flags and, and Turkish flags, whatever it was, hanging off their balconies and people were painting their faces in white and just having a great time. And I got in the middle of that, you know, I'd just be walking by and three old ladies would come me and they'd stop to, you know, dance with me and I'd dance back and they'd put stuff on my face. Never so, you know, it was so alive. So, so, and, and yet I was so out, uh, distant. I was an outsider, but I, they, they brought me in. Um, and then the same thing happened in the, I saw the dancing that, that, that happened in different places in, in the in Cape Coast. There was drumming. I got I didn't even put this in the book, by the way, um, but I think it's in my memoir when I wrote that one. You show me yours. I went to, to, to the slave castle in, in uh, Cape Coast and there's one in Elmina, too, but I think it was a Cape Coast one. And uh, it's it was like this is where the slaves were brought. This is where the captured captured Africans were brought down put in this dungeon you go in there the wall you know the the door is like a, a giant stone wall of maybe three feet thick or something it's it's amazing and um and you go down these steps and they go into this room and it's totally dark and in that room which is maybe size of my a little bit bigger than my bedroom maybe i was 20 by 20 or something but it was like maybe 400 square feet hundreds and hundreds of people were put there and there was no bathrooms there was you know and they were put there until the boat arrived to for them to come out and the only way they got out was they lowered a rope ladder from a 25 foot foot high window which is you know an opening and they and you had to climb up that ladder and then climb down the other side and yet get the boat and you're on your way to america so of the 600 people that might have been in that room for weeks months whatever maybe uh 20 percent of them died right there never made it out and then another 20 or 30 percent probably died on the way over so the strongest survived but only about 50 percent maybe now 
it's it i mean roots if you ever re- read roots or seen it you know you this is you know they they show some of this stuff but i was right there and and in i i was taken so taken by it that i was with about four or five people and they all when they left i stayed behind just to be in this room totally dark right it was like you know you couldn't see anything and i had to feel my way along the wall to find myself back where the steps were and i tried to go up the step but the door was closed they had left I was locked in the castle. And so now I, I walked down the steps a little bit and I just, I just, at first I shouted something. By shouting, what I did was wake up the bats. There were hundreds and hundreds of bats in there and they started flying all around like this. And I'm going, holy moly, this is an experience. <laughs> you know, it's insane. And I just sat on those steps for about 20 minutes, I'd say, until someone recognized, hey, where's Larry, right? Oh, maybe he's... They came back, they, the door opens, I see light come out, you know, and I, I got out of there. Um, but it was that kind of stuff. You know, another place I was in also in Cape Coast, I, I heard some drumming and I went and there was people dancing and there's a talking drum, which is a, the kind of drum they put under the arm and there's a stick that's curved and they're hitting it. But they're not just hitting it to make noise. They're also saying something. And, uh, you know, I, I, I joined this, this group, uh, this chiefs let me, and they let me do it. They try to teach me how to do a talking drum. Where do you have these experiences? And then uh, I'm teaching at the Ghana Institute of Journalism. In comes uh, the, the new head of state is Dr. Okosi Abusia. Now, he, you know, this is a democratic thing. He came over, they, they, you know, they, they went from the army into a, the, one of the first democratic uh, elected countries in, in Ghana, in Africa. And he was coming to speak at the Institute of Journalism. And they asked me, the director says, will you introduce him? I'm 22 years old. And now I'm introducing the head of state. You know, I mean, it's the, where could, where will that happen? If you know, you know, I mean, it's, it was, it's really quite something. I went to see a fetish priest this, you know, and I wanted to know, you know, will I be drafted, you know, and I went to, and, 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 and it's, it was a truly amazing experience, you know, because she, this was in a place called Larte and the people who would, that all the, the women being trained there and only women would be trained. They, they all had white powder on their faces and their hair was all reddish, you know, and, 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 and looked dirty, but it was whatever. And uh, how they got there was they started speaking Larte language, but they would be living in the north in, 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 in different areas or even in, in Mali or in, in Togo. And they thought all of a sudden a woman is a seamstress or she's married or she has children and she starts jabbering in a different language. Nobody knows what she's do, saying. She's possessed. Somebody says she's speaking Larte. Okay, because there's 157 dialects in, in Ghana uh, and, and 350 in, in Nigeria. So they recognize it. The minute they recognize it's Larte, they send her there. She's no longer considered married. She's no longer a mother. She's no longer a seamstress. She's now being trained as a fetish priestess. And it's a three-year training program. And by the time you finish, you 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 have a coming out ceremony where they you know uh, the, the 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 you get possessed where the something enters you. What, and you what would the, what would the fetish what what does that mean fetish priestess? What would you be? Like what a, would you be an trained? Herbal, like an herbal doctor, let's say. Okay. Let's say you know you know it, it's someone who is trained in the in the herbal arts. So when you come and, and also sort of a psychological, it's like a therapist as well. But so you're you're trained in a certain way so that you know. Um, if if you have breast cancer, uh, you you the, the more educated goes to the hospital, 
the less educated go to the fetish priestess. If you have a trouble with with a, a, a some like a juju man as well, you know, which I had to deal with. Um, if someone accuses you of stealing something and you say I didn't steal it, well, they'll take the money that they that you they you want your money back. Let's say on something, which happened to me and my and and Hatar, my houseboy, and they send it up to the juju man. He has to curse it. So they'll give you back the money. But if you stole anything, you're, you or someone in your family is going to die. This is serious stuff, right? Because they believe this stuff. So it's 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 real. There are ghost stories. You know, I mean, I met somebody uh, that I had met in God. <laughs> this is a crazy story because I don't believe it myself. But uh, yeah, it's in my book. Um, there was somebody who was a driver at the school. And uh, I, I knew Quasi, I think was his name, and I knew him, and, and we talked. Anyway, I, I didn't see him for about a year. And then I, I come across him and, and uh, walking, and I said, Quasi, what are you, how are you? Well, you know, and then we start talking, and he says, I, I said, well, let's have dinner tonight. He says, okay. He didn't show up. So I see somebody else at the school the next day. I said, hey, you know, I saw Quasi. And they said, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, I did. I talked to him. He says, did you, did you shake his hand? I said, no, he was carrying a package. He says, you can't shake the hand of a ghost. I said, what are you talking about? He says, Quasi died six months ago. And I said, no, I don't believe it. But it's like a shifting, shift, shifting you know, timeline, like a quantum it, jump, maybe. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting because I believe that uh, I believe that ghosts exist if you believe they do. I don't, you know, I mean, we are in our society, we don't have these kinds of, you know, outside beliefs, let's say, um, of, of this nature. But then again, what do we have? You know, we have Christ who walked on water and, you know, and rose from the dead. I mean, there's this, you know, every every society and every religion has stuff that is supernatural in a way. So it seemed like, uh, you know, every culture has uh, things that the collective accepts. And our culture is obviously very different than Ghana and some of the other cultures that were over there that you visited. But there seems like there are some universal truths, whether it be, you know, things that are life affirming, like the water, the dancing, the rituals, and even the women. So what was it like in terms of you being kind of a, the uh, foreigner, if you will, into a different culture that in many ways it seemed like it was less dysfunctional than our culture and had a lot of simplicity, <laughs> a lot of truth, a lot of authenticity, and a lot of honesty that we don't have, but it also had some things that were comparable, like in terms of heterosexuality, it seemed like there were still kind of rules in place for that, that seemed to be universally driven. How did you process all of that as a young man? Well, well, first of all, I'm not sure about, you know, how much honesty I saw. I saw a lot of corruption, you know, in, in Ghana. I mean, a lot of dashing, they call it dashing, you know, or Sali, the, the, the journalist. I'd send them on assignments because I was dealing with journalists all the time. And they would come back and say, look at the shoes I got. I did the story on this or, or oh, I got a new shirt. And thanks for sending me to, to this Lebanese uh, dealer. And he gave me this. I said, you can't take this stuff. You're writing about it. And you're writing or going to review movies. They wrote great reviews about lousy movies. And I say, mm -hmm. you can't do this. Oh, but I get free passes. You know, so there was a, you know, <laughs> right. so there, was a there was that. And if you got on a bus, or, or going out of the airport, the Lebanese, I, I, I witnessed this, you know, I mean, I never even knew about bribes and stuff. I'm just going in and out of the country. I have my passport. I go, you know, back and forth. I saw every Lebanese I ever saw, every, it was a business businessman. 
he would have a whole bunch of cash. And as he'd walk through the airport, every official, every, you know, soldier or policeman got 10, 10 CDs here, 20 CDs here, like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 50 bucks. He would just be handing it out, all of them. So they get on the plane. Why? Because they're probably smuggling diamonds. They're smuggling something, you know, they're bringing in stuff. To bring. So, you know, the, but it was very out in the open. That's the corruption I saw there was very out in the open. Sometimes I'd be on a lorry going to the Ivory Coast. We got stopped three times by the police. Every time we got stopped, everybody had a handover, a couple of, uh, couple of shillings, a couple tribute, of whatever, right? 50 cents, whatever. Yeah, and if we didn't, if you said no, you don't do it, they would take out all the uh, the, the the stuff, all your, your belongings. They look through everything. They would just delay you for an hour or two. So everybody contributed. That's just the way it was. In America, our corruption is much deeper, and and you know not quite as you know easily to see. But corporations that don't pay taxes, etc. But the, the the thing about you know men and women, this is like. There's a, the, the sexuality was very easy, you know, in Ghana. Um, so, you know, but what, what disturbed me sometimes was what my director, the director of the Institute of Journalism, uh, he would he would not give the girls their books unless he slept with them. You know what I mean? It was that kind of thing. And they would tell me this and I would be I'd be outraged. And for a long time, I was I was really upset by some of the stuff I saw, you know, the, the, the morality and the immorality. And then I realized this is not my culture. This is their culture. They have to deal with things on, you know, on their level. They know how to deal with them better than I, you know, telling them you're wrong here. You know, I, I didn't want to judge, you sure. know, what, what I was seeing so much, but I was being, my eyes are being open constantly, you know, when, when I was there and there were things that I, I appreciated, you know, it was very, I went to the, my houseboy, I went to his, his village where his mother is there. And she says, what religion are you? And, you know, she's asking me about it. And I, 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 I try to explain. So I, I put my hands over like like uh, the Ten Commandments and I went down <laughs> like this. Oh, OK. She understood that. Right. So, it was, you know, it was and then they they brought out they brought out a, a fork and a, a, a fork and a spoon for me to eat. I didn't want to eat with a fork and a spoon because nobody there ate with a fork and they ate with their hands. But this was like, you know, they had put this away for a very special occasion and I was the special occasion. And I realized if I said no to that, I would be hurting them. You know, I mean, I would be offending them. So I had to do certain things, even if I didn't want to do them. Um, but, you know, overall, the, 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 the nature of the people the, uh, that I met and I dealt with, uh, the the people that I knew who some people ended up going to the asylum. There was a you know, tall worked at this place called Fariscos, which was a like a 7-Eleven. And, you know, there was a guy who was a bouncer. Anybody got caught stealing, they'd give him to John. John would have to beat him up. And then John, all of a sudden, this, uh, next thing I know, Matar says, oh, we, Atar, he went crazy today. We had to put him in the insane asylum, which was not far from where I was staying. I said, let's go visit him. So we would visit. And I got to see, you know, how people reacted in just different levels, but because I was white, I was, you know, there was different, there was a different way people would treat you. When I was trying to get the passport for my, for my houseboy, we kept going to the, you know, there would be people, he would go by himself and he would have to wait all day. And then they say, come back tomorrow. And they were, so I went with him and I said, I'm not leaving until we see him. We had to stay six hours, but they finally saw us, you know, and then you give a bottle of gin or, you know, or schnapps or whatever. And then, you know, then they tell you, come back again. So you're, you're dealing in, in societies in a very different way. And, okay. and to me, you know, I, I, 
I was able to survive it and thrive in it in a way. And uh, that's what I was able to write about. Okay. The name of the book is Turquoise. My special guest on Guys Guys Radio is the incredible interviewer of interviewers, Larry Lawrence Grobel. Let's move on to a completely different piece of uh, your work called Catch a Falling Star, I believe it is. I was just reading it. A fallen star, not a fallen fallen star. (laughs) And it's about a very interesting character. His name is Cross, Leighton Cross. And he uh, was a famous actor who was losing his way in Hollywood. And then an inciting incident happened where he kind of slugged his ex-wife and uh, things kind of changed. So what was your... What was your inspiration to write this story? Was Leighton Cross based on anybody that you knew, or is he a composite? And what is really the message of the book? It's it's very well written, very different. It's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I flipped through it fast, and it's, I think it's terrific. It would be a great movie. Yeah, it would. I wrote a screenplay for it, too, but I haven't shown it to anybody. It's been one of those things. But, um, yeah, this book took me a really long time to write. I wrote another novel after that called Begin Again, Finnegan, and that one took me just like five months. I knocked that off fast. This book took years. And and I had this idea. Yes, it, it, it is based on, I had a character in mind that I knew, um, but it, the inc- all the incidents were fiction, you know? So, I mean, it's so, yes, it, in a certain way, there's a composite, but... Um, uh, and and the 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 woman he slugs is someone I you know a very famous movie star. So yeah, it, 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 I don't think it's too hard to look at my career, see who I was friendly with, and see who I may have written about. Um, uh, but I just I you know the I think about write about what you know. Well, what do what do I really know in my professional career is like movie stars and 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 uh, actors and directors. You know, I mean, you know, my book on the Houston's. You know, I spent all these years with John and 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 nine months with Streisand and you know ten days with Brando. So I mean, I, I I I've I've gotten to see how they behave. You know, and what is the nature of fame and what happens when you lose it. And that's basically you know what I saw was there are stars. Who become very big, you know, and they they're on the cover of Time magazine or Newsweek, and uh, the next thing you know, they you know they're, they're looking for work, you know, and 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 or or they're doing t- TV, let's say, or what have you, or may, trying to do some plays. So, I thought if I can if I can create write about these this kind of situation where the star was once very big, he has now fallen on hard times, and he's got a family, he's got two kids. Uh, or three kids, actually, one with another woman, and all everything that that can go wrong with his life goes wrong, and yet because it's in the public eye, and because it gets written about in Rolling Stone or something else, he gets bigger and bigger. You know, I mean, his, his fame in stay, you know, keeps you in the public eye, but he doesn't. He's still not working on the level that he once was. So it's a very frustrating kind of situation for an actor because. You know, I've been with uh, these actors where, you know, they they uh, they're walking the street and somebody screams at them and then they go pose for a picture. And, you know, it, it, it's it's uncomfortable. You don't know if someone's coming to punch you or shoot you, you know, and, you know, I was walking with Al Pacino once and we were, ju- we were just going from his house in Beverly Hills down to, uh, to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. We we're going to get some coffee. And as we're walking. Someone 
some woman saw who he was, jumped out from behind, you know, I mean, jumped out of her car, came up from behind us, and she had a, a CD with her. She wanted to give her, uh, you know, she did a show or something. She wanted to hand it to him. And she, but she, she came up from behind and she touched his shoulder. He so freaked out. He jumped into the bushes. I mean, you know, and I, you know, and I turned around, you know, and she was, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I just wanted to give you this, and you know, he took it. She left, and he just threw it, you know, away because he was like, he was really shaken. You know, the Manson family shook everybody. You know, I mean, the Streisand and all these people, they they would nobody, they didn't know if they should could go out. They didn't know if they had to hire more people. So there's a fragility to to stardom and fame. You know that you, you one thing is you get it. The other thing is, what do you do with it? And yeah, you know, and and how do you how do you balance your life? What was your take on then Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Just out of curiosity, I thought it was really good. I thought it was. Really, I mean, it's 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 he. You know, it's a different ending. <laughs> it's not what happened. Right. Right. But but um, no, I thought uh, it was a fun movie to watch. And you know, it was like okay, let's get these guys instead of letting them get us, kind of thing. You know, so mm -hmm. you know you, you reverse it. Um, but you know, he's a he's a very clever director and he's a very good writer you know and his dialogue is always very good and his action um i mean i just saw pulp fiction the other day again and it holds up you know i mean yes. there's the, the characters you know the acting um so yeah so in this in this situation i you know i i, I had this character Leighton cross things that go wrong he, he gets you know he gets finally gets a job uh, to do a movie called the sandman and then uh the young man who uh he's acting with is is really the main star he's sort of secondary and then he ends up getting into a fight with this kid he ends up getting a broken jaw he gets invited to go to 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 for a festival in his honor in japan um and uh he he, he goes there and, and 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 you know different things happen in japan with you know there's a woman there who's taking him around and and he's he's just trying to make it through life basically you know and 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 yet whatever like it's what happens with his ex-wife the you know the one who's really famous he went to see her she starts you know saying i don't want you to see our son anymore i don't trust you and everything and then and she, he says something to her she says something back and boom he, he hits her and that of course it explodes on him and but what was interesting to me was i tried to write it as a screenplay before i finished the book and as i was writing it i saw where the holes were and i saw oh so I came up with another character. I came up with uh, a producer who may or may not be the father of his son, of his son. And I said, oh, that's a very interesting twist. And then so, you know, and there's a character who's who's very ill. He's in the hospital. Well, he's based on Henry Fonda because I was with Fonda at the end of his life. And, he, you know, so when my character Leighton goes to visit the, the Fonda character and, you know, he he. he he said he, he Leighton is saying something to him and he motions for him to come and he puts his ear to him and he says work just work you know this that's what and that's what his fund is you know philosophy was just to oh, do the work based on your time working with all these stars in the business and now how hollywood is today do you have empathy for the business itself for the people who are in it do you see a big change between what Hollywood, how Hollywood rolls now versus the way it used to be? Do you have a, a judgment, a negative feeling about the industry? Positive? It seems like you have empathy for it because it's a tough business. I do. It is a very tough business. You know, I was, I went to the gym this morning and there's a woman there 
Uh, she's a uh, an African American woman that I was I was on the you know not the treadmill the bicycle and she was next to me and we started talking because we the only two people wearing masks nobody else is wearing a mask anymore and you know she says she's an actress I said oh I I spent a lot of time interviewing actresses and you know and and so we started just to talk and all um, and you know she's talking to me about her trying to get into the business, her trying to deal with something, how she's got an offer for this, but her agent is really bad and she doesn't trust him. And I'm telling her what I think she should do. I don't even know her. And I'm saying, you know, <laughs> well, according to what I, but, but, you know, it's, it's a very, very difficult business. And, and because of the internet and because of the Instagrams and the Twitters and all of this stuff, you know, you don't have a time to develop as much. You know, uh, and also the look at Playboy doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, I did these interviews with people who were at the height of their fame, right? I mean, with Pavarotti or with uh, mm -hmm. with Pacino or George e. Scott or whoever they were. Uh, these are people who you know, were worthy of a major kind of interview. Now these people aren't going aren't being interviewed like that. They but they have websites or people have fan things, and you know, so you can go there. And you there's a woman in Germany. She's 21 years old. And she's been in love with uh, absolutely Gaga over Ava Gardner. So she gets in touch with me and she's, she's, she's you know, can I tell her any sort of, did, did Ava ever give you that corgi dog you wrote about in your book? And I said, I said, how is a 21 year old, you know, so in, enamored with, with Ava? And yet, that you know, it's all over the world. I, that book, my Ava Gardner book, sells more than almost any other of my books. Isn't that something? I mean, it, I put it out in 2012. And it, even today, I saw nine copies were sold on, you know, I look, check every day. I said, well, that's pretty amazing. Why? You know, well, there's a, there is something about some of these people that have captured our imagination. Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, they live forever. You know, they die young. They live forever. Um, but is it different? It's always hard to say how different things are. The studio system was different. You know, I mean, you, actors were doing seven move, movies in a year. They were they were told what to do. They didn't have a choice. You know, then they they broke free and they 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 started becoming independent. You know, like baseball players and stuff. You know, now they they're they're doing their own stuff. They're making more money, but they're making less films. Um, then it's a competition. I know that Diane Keaton is often angry that uh, Meryl Streep gets all the first crack at things. You know, and she gets a second crack or something. Yeah, this is it's a difficult, difficult business, you know, to, to be in and to, and to navigate your way through. Um, so I have the utmost respect for people who are acting, just like I do with writers. You know, I mean, it's a it, creative people. It's a very difficult thing to make a living as a creative person. Uh, you, some of them at the very top do. But the majority of people, uh, they're still waiting on tables. But what is the one characteristic that you have noticed over time that kind of star quality that you can identify that you say, everybody who's really made it and made a real impact has this particular quality. No, I don't think that's, I can answer that, but I mean, that's a, similar to a question I asked John Houston. I said, was it, I said, when, when, when someone, how do you know, you know, when, when somebody has got it and he says, he says, you know, he said, you look at Humphrey Bogart, he was an ordinary man. When I knew when I knew Bogey, he just he, he didn't have. But when the camera came upon him, you couldn't take your eyes off him. He says the same thing with. And he says, oh, I didn't like him very much. John Wayne had that quality. Uh, and um, Robert Mitchum. He says there's something about when when a camera goes on these people, the, you, your attention is is there. And, you know, this is what it is. 
Um, I'm getting enough sign here. It says my internet is unstable, so who yes. knows what's going to happen. But but um, so you know I I you know the same. I've always asked that question about. I asked Al once. Who I said you've been in a room with a lot of different people. Who is it that you know stood out? Who you know when they can, when everyone come in? He said he was in a at a dinner once, and there was Warren Beatty and Nicholson and all these very big people there. He says, and you know what happened? He says when Woody Allen walked in. Everybody got quiet. Everybody got quiet. It was Woody Allen. I mean, nowadays there's a lot of different opinions about Woody Allen, but this was his thing. Diane Keaton said that that she felt that with Bill Clinton. She says when Clinton came into the room, all the star power went to him. You know, so there are these people that are like that. It's hard to say why, but they have this aura. Mm-hmm. You know, they have something about them that that shines in a way. Uh, so so, you know, your attention is is taken there. Um, what is it? You know, it's like when people ask me about why do you why are you a good interviewer and why, you know, how do you get these people to do it? And I said, I don't know. I said it, but it has to do with personality. It has to do with, you know, people it has to do with your eyes. It has to do with how you approach it and your smile or whatever it is that makes you, someone comfortable with you versus not comfortable, let's say, with someone else. You know, that's that's basically uh, that's a that's an intangible. You can't teach it, but um, you certainly can try to understand it. What's a surefire way, Larry? Of you got it. You have an interview, and every you know everybody. A lot of the people you're meeting for the first time. I mean, I do this. I interview a couple of people a week. Uh, out of 600 plus people I've interviewed, I'd have known none of them. I get on the screen, and we have to instantly connect. Okay. What? How do you make that connection right away? What's your, do you have a technique for that? Or do you just be yourself and make them comfortable? I think that's the technique is to be yourself immediately. If you're comfortable with who you are and if you're prepared, I mean, you know what I mean? If if you're not prepared, they see it in your eyes. There's fear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, what's going to happen here? You know, that happened to me when I I was supposed to interview Morgan Fairchild in New York. And I, and what happened was she uh, got ill. She was in on, on Broadway that, at that time. So she, so they called me up at, at six in the morning, seven in the morning, I get a call saying she can't make it. Well, I had flown to New York. We are, uh, we had rented out the Broadway theater for the F for the morning. We had to be done by 12. So they, you know, they prepare for the, for the show that night. What am I going to do? I said, I, we put all that expense into doing it. So I managed, I called my friend, Joel Siegel. I said, who, who might show up at the last minute? You know, I, I couldn't do it. I said, forget women because women have to get prepared. So that's not going to work. I'm uh, so what guy? And then we came up with Charles Grodin. I said, Grodin like this. So he gives me his phone number. I called Charles Grodin at 6, 730 in the morning. And I said, Mr. Grodin, I said, you don't know me. I, I said, Joel Siegel gave me your number. And I, I I know you may not be happy that someone gave out your number. And I apologize for that. But I'm in a desperate situation. This is the stuff. And he was nice enough to say, OK, I'll come. Well, now, once he agreed to come, he's coming in a half an hour. I don't know anything about him other than seeing the heavens. Uh, heavens can. Uh, I think I'll wait. Allison, something, uh, not heaven can wait. Yeah, that was the one with him. And then I knew that he was within the Muppet movie, right? Miss Piggy. Right. Um, but other than that, 
I really didn't have the background. Now, I'm not the kind of interviewer that likes to talk to somebody I don't know anything about. It's hard and it's going to be on camera, no less, you know, so I kind of, I'm fidgety. So it was a very nerve wracking thing. Um, and I learned a lesson, you know, I mean, I, I, I did it, but I'm not that proud of that interview. It's not one of the, the ones I put in a, in a vault. Um, but, you know, so but when I see somebody else, when I go to see a Brando, or when I go to see, you know, a Pavarotti and I'm really prepared, I'm I'm more casual. I may be nervous that, that that's the nervous energy, but I, I'm smiling. I'm happy I'm here. I'm happy I'm doing this thing, you know, and oh, I, I'm looking forward to it, you know, and they can sense that they can see it. I'm not there to do a job on anybody. You know, I'm not there to hurt you. Sometimes I may. I mean, De Niro wasn't happy with what I did with him, but but that's his fault. <laughs> you know, I was just happy to be there. So. You know, to answer that, I think it's just to be prepared and to feel confident um, in who you are. You know, there's nobody else I'd rather be. You know, that's a, that, people ask me that. Would you like to be Al Pacino if you could trade places? Not in a million years. Would you like to? The only person I ever thought uh, life I would change before I really knew about him was John Huston because he had the most extravagant life. He was, you know, a boxer and he had five wives and he had all these mistresses and he did these movies and he wrote, you know, this stuff. And he was he was a really interesting man. So I said, yeah, that might be interesting. But then I saw God. He he was also a bit of a cad in a way, you know. He was he he was not always the the nicest guy in the world about certain things, um, and a lot of people told me about that. But uh, I'm just happy in my own skin. Good. I'm you know I'm not I'm not depressed. A depressed person, I think, is not a good person to be an interviewer. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Larry Lawrence Grobel, the world's greatest interviewer. I've learned a lot from you, Larry. So thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show. We're, our time's running out. It went fast. We got we covered a lot, though. So I hope you're pleased with it. And I hope we can do it again soon. So uh, you can find more information about you at your website, which is lawrencegrobel.com. Right. And all the books are on Amazon. All 31 of my books you can find on Amazon. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for coming back to Guys Guys Radio, Larry. It's Guys Guy Radio. Once again, a terrific, illuminating interview with my mentor and the great one, the goat of interviewing, Larry Grobel. Thank you so much again, Larry, for being my guest on Guys Guys Radio. You're truly an inspiration and you're so available to me. And you've been such a teacher without trying to be my teacher. I just have learned so much from your books and from just chatting with you and from interviewing you and your interviewing me last year on the show. We've had so much fun. So what did we learn today from Larry Grobel? I think we learned that the Peace Corps is an amazing experience. Uh, maybe it's different now than it was in the 60s or early 70s. I'm not sure. But when you're a young man or a young woman and you're traveling around the world and a little bit carefree and young and willing to try new things, it's a beautiful time in life. And Larry articulated that so well in his book, Turquoise. We also learned the uh, bumps and bruises that uh, the Hollywood career entails. And it's a hilarious book called Catch a Fallen Star. And I think we also learned from Larry that there's a lot of challenges when you're interviewing people, particularly the celebrities, because uh, they've got reputations to protect. They've got images and brands that they really need to massage just in, right, in the right way. And they really want to present themselves in a way that 
maintains an air of mystery, but gives people something to digest and feel satisfied with. It's like a good story. The reader wants the ending that they want, but they want to get it in a way that they're not expecting. And that's what good storytelling does. So Larry Grobel, my special guest, we'll get him back here on Guys Guys Radio again for sure. We're here on GGR every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA Radio here in Southern California. The podcast and YouTube post and Rumble now post worldwide on Thursdays. And we're in over 101 countries now on the podcast. And you can also listen to the replay of Guys Guys Radio on KCAA every Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So there's no excuse for you not to be able to catch our show because we're everywhere you consume your podcasts and we're YouTube and Rumble and just just about every place. So thank you so much for your support. And if you want to support the show and you enjoy the content and the interviews I bring you, I would ask you a favor. It won't cost you a penny, and that is to subscribe to our YouTube channel, also to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. So thank you. You can also catch me on my website, robertmanni, M-A-N-N-I.com. I've got over 300 uh, blog posts, rather, about everything from diet, wellness, relationships, dating, work, investing, friendships, and oh yeah, sex. All for free, all on my website, where you can also download three free chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guy to Love which is the source material for everything guys guy. And it's about, once again, it's about two guys in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. It's got friendship, frenemies, sex, revenge, redemption. It's a rom-com. It's been called the male successor to Sex in the City. It's a lot of fun. I hope you'll enjoy it and check it out either on Amazon or wherever you pick up your books in the physical form or the ebook. So that's our show for this week. Can't wait to get back and do it again next week. Until then, I want to thank my guests as always. And I want to thank my producer, Chris, who does an amazing job. And I want to thank most of all you, my audience, and for staying with me and continuing this journey together. And we're learning so much as a group. I'm learning a lot. You're learning a lot with the over 600 interviews we've done on Guys Guys Radio. A lot more to come. So I'll see you next week. And until then, like I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. Finish first.